Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chatterley, and here is what you need to know. Fighting Huawei. The US asked the judge to throw out Huawei's lawsuit, plus drowned in complaints. Samsung is facing lawsuits over its water-resistant smartphone claims. And there is no stranger danger here. Companies are cashing in on Netflix's popular TV series, Stranger Things, as it kicks off its third season. It is Thursday, and this is First Move. Everyone to first move. I'm Zane Asher. It is July 4th here in the United States. We are celebrating Independence Day here in America. Wall Street uh, is closed for the holiday, but all the major indices finished Wednesday's session at record highs. There are a few fireworks when it comes to overseas trades. Uh, European stocks are little changed overall. Italian stocks are rallying for a second day after the EU said it was happy for now with the country's effort to cut debt. Asian stocks, uh, meantime, finish the session mixed. Friday will be a very, very uh, important day for investors here in the United States. The U.S. releases its latest jobs report, which is a crucial piece of information for the Federal Reserve as it debates uh, cutting interest rates and by how much. We got ADP numbers uh, yesterday. They came in a little bit lower than expected, about 102,000 jobs added last month. Let's get right to the drivers now. The United States says it is hitting back at Huawei over the lawsuit it filed against the government ban. The Department of Justice has asked a federal court in Texas to dismiss the Chinese firm's case. Sheree's firm is following the story. So, uh, Sheree, first of all, just explain to us, how does this lawsuit fit in with President Trump's announcement on Saturday at the G20 that he's easing restrictions on Huawei? How do the two fit together? So these are actually two separate issues. The, uh, the, this lawsuit that Huawei filed, they filed it back in March. And it was it was challenging the constitutionality of the National Defense Authorization Act. And they said because a section of that law specifically named Huawei and banned federal agencies from selling, uh, from buying Huawei equipment, that it was unconstitutional. But Department of Justice lawyers are saying that is wrong. They are saying that that argument is, is not only faulty and outdated, but they're saying that Barring federal agencies from buying Huawei equipment is actually, quote, the logical next step in protecting U.S. national security. Now, Huawei has long argued that none of its products pose any kind of a national security risk, and they took that case to court. They filed this lawsuit in a, in a district court in Texas uh, back in March, and now this is obviously not the response that they were hoping for because lawyers are saying Look, you are using arguments from Civil War and Cold War eras, and they do not imply to this massive Chinese tech company. So the part of the NDAA that they're pushing back against is specifically called Section 889. And I want to quote to you from the motion uh, that the Department of Justice filed overnight. They said Section 889 does not sentence Huawei to death, imprison it, or confiscate its property. And plainly does not preclude Huawei from engaging in its chosen profession. So again, you know, likely not what Huawei was looking for, but to your question earlier, 
Huawei has much bigger problems to deal with because since this lawsuit was filed, they were added to a trade blacklist. And that happened in May when the Commerce Department added Huawei to the entity list. And that bars American companies like Google and Micron from selling software and chips to Huawei. And Huawei needs those parts to build its smartphones and its telecom gear. Now, Trump did change course over the weekend and said that U.S. companies could continue selling or or resume selling to Huawei, provided it doesn't pose any kind of national emergency uh, risk, as he put it. But Huawei and its suppliers are still really unclear on what those details are. They don't know when they can start selling to Huawei again and what they can sell to Huawei, Zane. All right, so there still needs to be some further clarification on that front. Uh, Sarish Pham, live for us there. Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, Samsung is in hot water for putting its phones in seawater. The electronics giant ran adverts showing the Galaxy smartphone uh, in oceans and in pools, making it look as though it could actually be used while swimming. Australian regulators say that is certainly misleading and are hitting the company with a lawsuit. Alas Gold has been following this story. So just give us more specifics here. Um, What exactly has Samsung claimed about their phones and how water resistant are these phones really? Yeah, well, Zane, I'm sure we've all experienced, as I myself have, lost a phone to water damage. But the Australian competition regulator says that Samsung was advertising its phones as being completely waterproof, that you could go uh, underwater. They would show advertisements since February of 2016, a swimmer underwater using his phone. Uh, They would show advertisements of the phone being used to film one of those shark cages in clearly ocean water. But now the Australian competitions regulator is filing this lawsuit against Samsung, saying that these advertisements were misleading because they actually say that not all of Samsung's phones are completely waterproof. As you can see on the screen right now, these are some of the advertisements you saw. It's very clearly a man in a pool. There's other other advertisements that show very clearly a Samsung phone being used underwater in an ocean. But the Australian competition regulator that not all of the phones were actually suitable for use in all types of water. And actually, even if you went onto Samsung's website, it said that some of its phones, specifically the Galaxy S10, should not be used used in the beach or at a pool. And the Australian regulator is saying that when people went to Samsung and said, hey, fix my phone, it's under warranty, Samsung, they say, did not adhere to that. Uh, now, the phones subject to this case, I want to put a list up on the screen just to see how many phones are subject, according to the Australian regulator. They include the S10e, multiple S10s, the S9, S9+, Plus, S8, S7 Edge, the Note 9, the A7, the A5, any of these phones that were manufactured between 2016 and 2019. These are some of Samsung's most popular phones. Now, if this lawsuit is upheld, Samsung could face fines worth millions of dollars because a recent change in the law found that any that the maximum penalty for any violation, and you could even consider sort of each advertisement a violation, can be up to $7 million. So Samsung is facing some high fines here. Now, this comes on the heels of a tough few months for Samsung. If you remember that foldable phone fiasco that some of their new phones foldable phones that they sent to reviewers broke and they got some really awful press and they delayed the release of this foldable phone. Uh, But this is another sort of ding in their armor now for Samsung that they're dealing with. Samsung, for their part, says that they stand by the marketing and advertising of the water resistancy of its smartphones and they plan to fight this lawsuit, Zane. As you mentioned, uh, it's been a tough uh, 
months and a few years, I guess, for Samsung. Uh, appreciate you joining us, Haraskal. Thank you so much. Okay, so India's biggest ride-hailing firm, Ola, has permission to now drive in London. The company will rival Uber in one of the world's largest taxi markets. Anna Stewart is joining us live now from London. So it's interesting, you know, Ola joining the London market. It's a tricky market because it's heavily saturated when it comes to other ride-hailing mm-hmm. apps. And also, you have a huge amount of lobbying from taxi drivers in London as well that has made things quite difficult for Uber at times. You're absolutely right. A real tough market to crack. And I think it's really interesting that this company, this Indian company, Ola, did actually do some soft launches in smaller cities around the UK very quietly before making this move in on London. We expect this launch to happen sometime around September. Tricky market to crack, firstly, due to regulation. We've got some of the toughest transport regulation out there. In fact, the London transport regulator actually decided not to renew Uber's license just over a year ago. That decision was overturned in the end. Bolt, another rival, used to be called Taxify. That first launched two years ago. It had to close down, close shop just three days later. That was also due to licensing problems. But as you say, it has actually already passed this first hurdle. It's already got the license. That is great news. Now, the big challenge will be, can it really steal market share from Uber? Because the other rivals haven't really posed much of a threat yet. Now, Morgan Stanley in a research note says, this one could be. The thing about Ola that's different to other rivals is it has really, really deep pockets. It's raised nearly $4 billion. It's backed by SoftBank, like Uber. So it really could be a threat here. But also, as you mentioned, uh, or as I mentioned earlier, the London market is heavily saturated. It's not just Uber that Ola is going to have to contend with here. Yep, there's also Captain, there's also um, Bolt, which used to be called Taxify. But Uber is definitely the dominant uh, player here. And actually, apparently, for Uber as a company overall, London accounts to something between 4 to 8% of all ride-sharing bookings. So it's a big deal for Uber. So what will be interesting is when Ola actually launches sometime in September, I think we can expect to see lower driver take rates, lots of promotions, driving down those costs. But if Uber tries to match that, that is going to take a huge hit on revenue given how big London is as a market for Uber. So it's going to be very interesting. Could be a race to the bottom zone. All right, Anna Stewart, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, so these are the stories making headlines uh, around the world. In the past hour, Russia President uh, Vladimir Putin and Pope Francis have been meeting. There's speculation it's a warm-up for a papal visit to Russia, which would be the very first of its kind. One likely topic for discussion is the conflict in Ukraine. The Pope has previously urged Mr. Putin to make a, quote, sincere and great effort to achieve peace. And the U.S. president's big Independence Independence Day event is stirring up controversy. The Salute to America parade will have tanks, a military flyover and a presidential speech. Source tells CNN military chiefs are concerned it will be politicized. And Netherlands are into Sunday's final of the Women's World Cup after knocking out Sweden. They scored the only goal of the game with a sweet injury time strike uh, into the bottom corner. Uh, The Dutch will now face the defending World Cup champions and tournament favourites, the United States. All right, coming up, first move goes to the upside down. Netflix releases season three. Can't wait to watch it. Season three of its hit show, Stranger Things. We'll take a look at how the streaming giant is cashing in on 1980s nostalgia. That's next. Welcome back to First Move, everyone. I'm coming to you live from New York. Call it a pre-4th of July extravaganza. All the major U.S. indices are actually closed 
Wednesday's shortened session in record territory. You see green arrows across the board there. It was the first time the Dow closed at all-time highs since October. Uh, U.S. traders are pausing for breath this holiday and reflecting on the strong gains we've seen so far for the stocks this year. The Dow and the S&P are both up more than 15%. The Nasdaq has soared 23%. Mike Bell joins us live now with his take on the markets. He's the global market strategist for JP Morgan Asset Management. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for being with us. So here you have the S&P 500 hitting new record highs uh, yesterday, despite the fact that you have this potential looming possible sort of trade spat with Europe. And also those ADP numbers we got yesterday came in uh, slightly worse than expected. Walk us through that. Yeah, I think it's, this year has been all about the Fed. So as the market's focused on the potential for rate cuts coming through, uh, the market is assuming that those rate cuts are going to extend the economic cycle, which is obviously already the longest expansion in history, that it's going to extend it for another year or two. Um, the market is pricing in consensus growth for earnings next year, double digit. Um, and to us, those numbers seem a little bit high. You mentioned the ADP number, the payrolls print there with small companies actually now having had net job losses for the last couple of months in a row. So to me, the risks are a little bit more balanced than the market is currently uh, assuming. And we would be more neutral in equities at the moment. And when you think about, I mean, you mentioned it's all about the Fed. When you think about uh, this looming potential rate cut, a lot of people are talking about the fact that it's going to be 25 basis points. Um, if the jobs report we're expecting on Friday comes in not so good, um, even worse in terms of expectations than the ADP report, do you think the Fed should be cutting rates more? I think if payrolls tomorrow come in sub 100,000, that'll then be the third sub 100,000 month we've had in the last uh, year. And I think in that environment, the Fed may well feel the need to cut rates by 50 basis points. Uh, if, on the other hand, we get a job number tomorrow that's more than 100,000 jobs added, then I think we're probably looking at more like a 25 basis point cut. All right, so earnings season is, of course, on the horizon. Expectations everywhere being uh, slashed. Just the fact that the expectations are coming in a lot lower, what does that tell you about corporate America's take on, on global growth and still fears about uh, tariffs? I think the main thing, actually, that's squeezing earnings at the moment is not so much the trade war, uh, but actually rising wage pressures. So you're seeing that tight labor markets are feeding through into higher wage growth across the economy, particularly in some of the lower paid sectors. You're seeing an acceleration in wage growth there now. So in places like retail, for example, leisure, you're seeing wage growth come through. And I think particularly for smaller companies, that's starting to squeeze margins. Um, and the trade concerns, that just adds to some of the weakness in terms of top-line growth as economic growth potentially slows on the back of that. So getting squeezed both from the top and the bottom in terms of sales growth and wage growth, uh, putting pressure on corporate profits. Um, I think that's going to lead to earnings growth coming in sort of not much more than zero probably in the second quarter. The question is whether we get a re-acceleration. The market is assuming that we get a re-acceleration in earnings into the end of this year and then heading into 20 to deliver about an 11% earnings growth for 2020. As I say, with the margin pressures building and those potential concerns around trade, that seems too high to us. 
And actually, as you were speaking there, we just saw a graphic of the 10-year Treasury yield being below 2%. I'm just, I just want to get your take on really what that means in terms of fears about global growth and also expectations about central banks uh, around the world boosting stimulus in monetary policy. Yeah, I think it's being driven by expectations that you're going to see not just rate cuts from the Fed, but globally a dovish shift from central banks. So the ECB have come out saying that they're likely to stimulate further, probably with more rate cuts and perhaps restarting QE. That also will put downward pressure on the 10-year yield. Um, So I think it's responding to expectations of global stimulus from the central banks. The key question for equity markets, though, is are we going to see a re-acceleration in growth? Are those central bank rate cuts and further stimulus measures going to be sufficient to cause the business surveys, such as the manufacturing surveys that have been quite weak in recent months, to pick up? If they do, then there's a risk that Treasury yields would start to rise from here. On the other hand, if growth continued to deteriorate and the central bank rate cuts and stimulus weren't sufficient to extend the cycle, then Treasury yields could have quite a lot further to fall. Mike Bell, thank you so much. Appreciate you being on the show. All right, so corporate earnings drive stock valuations, or you'd think they do. Uh, however, FactSet Research estimates that earnings, as I was talking about with uh, Mike Bell there, uh, earnings of S&P 500 companies fell in the second quarter year over year after dipping in the first three months as well. They're expected to do so again in the third quarter. So why are so many stocks trading near record highs? I asked Paul LaMonica about this paradox. Take a listen. Yeah, I think investors right now, Zane, are just so obsessed with this expectation of a Fed rate cut later this month and possibly more rate cuts later this year. And they're ignoring the fact that profits were down a little bit in the first quarter, expected to fall in the second quarter, and might even fall again in the third quarter. The trade war is clearly having an impact on corporate America, but it's party mode on Wall Street because Jerome Powell's probably going to help everyone out with a rate cut or two. So part of the issue, of course, as you mentioned, is the trade war. Do you, do you anticipate that the trade war is actually going to impact uh, tech and consumer companies as well? Yeah, I think those are the two sectors, Zane, that people really have to pay the most attention to. In fact, according to some data from FactSet, more than half of the earnings warnings that we've already seen for the second quarter have come from the tech and consumer discretionary sectors. And those are the ones that both import a lot from foreign markets, particularly China, and also are exporting goods to companies, uh, sorry, to countries like China, India, and uh, you know Europe, and that's going to be something to keep a very close eye on. Tech and retail could they be squeezed by this trade mm. war? All right, we'll we'll have to pay attention to that. And uh, despite the warnings for second quarter and third quarter earnings, do you think that whatever happens, things could be reversed or at least improved somewhat by the fourth quarter? Yeah, that I think is the key right now, Zane. A lot of people I talked to said that, yes, we know the first quarter was not good. The second quarter is not likely to be much better. And the third quarter could be weak as well. But if we get trade tension out of the way by the fourth quarter, and that's when you have the holidays, you have a lot of corporations that are trying to spend what's on their budgets before the end of the year. That's typically when you get a big surge in profits. And there is a lot of hope that we're going to have fourth quarter numbers really boost 
the overall profit picture for the year. I mean, analysts are still expecting earnings to be up for all of 2019, largely because of expectations of a fourth quarter increase. All right, Paula Monica, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, stranger things have happened on Wall Street for sure. But with the markets closed for July 4th, Netflix is hoping to suck you into 1985 Hawkins, Indiana. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So, uh, Claire, I'm a huge Stranger Things fan. One thing that upset me is just how long I had to wait between the end of season two and the beginning of season three. Literally, in that time, in the gap between the two, I have gotten married, gotten pregnant, had a baby, and my baby is now 10 months. That is how long I had to wait between season two and season three. And let me tell you, that wait was excruciating. Why, why was the wait so long? Yeah, Zane, it has been a while. It was just before Halloween in 2017 that the second season dropped. Uh, now, Netflix addressed this last summer. They said it's a handcrafted show, and the creators just needed time to get it right. But look, it was important for Netflix that they got it right as well. The streaming wars are ramping up. Old media companies like NBC Universal and Disney are starting their own services, pulling their content off Netflix. So Netflix needs its originals like Stranger Things to do really well. And, and they are trying to market these shows to improve their cult following in any way they can. And in this case of Stranger Things, this has led to an unusual number of brand partnerships. The way the show is trying to reach beyond your TV set or your computer or your phone into your everyday life. Take a look. Start with a cherry and some pecans. Add whipped cream, caramel, and finally a scoop of chocolate ice cream. The result? A sweet marketing opportunity. Baskin-Robbins' Upside Down Sunday is named after the creepy parallel universe in the Netflix hit series Stranger Things. Upside Down Sunday. Stranger Things are happening at Baskin-Robbins. It's one of a new line of treats the ice cream store is rolling out to cash in on the show's third season, which features a fictional ice cream parlor called Scoops Ahoy. 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 Season three sees the teenagers from Hawkins, Indiana, take their fight against evil to the quintessential 80s hangout, the shopping mall. What did you think? We're just going to sit in my basement all day? Play games for the rest of our lives? The real selling, though, has been happening off camera. Netflix says they're partnering with about 75 brands for the Stranger Things launch. An all-out international marketing blitz featuring everything from Nike to Burger King to the Chicago Cubs. Every network, every website, everyone is looking for those two hours that you have between the time you get home, put the kid to bed, finish dinner, and watch something. So anything that Netflix can do to grow that brand recognition and make you remember, hey, I should finish this season of Stranger Things, is a benefit. If you love the TV show Stranger Things, then boy, have we got a Lego set for you. Many of the brand tie-ins play on the 1980s nostalgia the show is known for. Netflix even convinced Coke to re-release New Coke, a product which flopped back in 1985 after Stranger Things decided to incorporate it into its plot. Netflix says no money changed hands on the Coke deal or on many of the show's other branding deals. Instead, Netflix is allowing companies to use the Stranger Things brand in return for a commitment to spend marketing dollars and dish up buzz for the show. They don't necessarily care so much about revenue from these deals. They do care, care about brand awareness and they do care about uh, acknowledgement. Now, it's one thing to incorporate brands seamlessly into a show's narrative to give a sense of authenticity and nostalgia. That was actually part of the vision for Stranger Things from the start. Now, of course, the risk is that all of this ends up going too far and the marketing starts to overwhelm 
the show itself. Class Bastian, CNN, New York. Well, Zane, of course, you and I are far too young to remember 1985, <laughs> clearly. But, but the experts do say that this nostalgia is key. The experts say this nostalgia is key as long as the show stays on message and, and the, the brand partnerships uh, are, are playing into this kind of nostalgia, then they should be okay. It should, it should be something that doesn't overwhelm the creativity of the show itself. And it's interesting because um, season two, a lot of people were a little bit disappointed with. Um, what are the expectations for season three, just in terms of, I mean, there is so much pressure on the creators of Stranger Things because it is such a popular show. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake here. A lot of the action, is, uh, as the piece showed, uh, Eleni, looks, looks like it's going to be taking place uh, around this mall. That has led to those opportunities for, for brands to be part of the show organically. I will just point out again, Netflix says uh, that they aren't making money uh, from the kind of product placement that you see uh, in this show. It's, it's, it's organic to the show. It's not something that they're using for revenue. But, uh, but, but this is still you know, kind of a new advertising paradigm that we're existing in. Netflix has consistently denied that it's not moving to an ad-based uh, system, that it's not going to have a, a, you know, an ad-based subscription. So product placement is one thing. Uh, marketing partnerships, be it you know, sh stores using the show's branding to sell products or partnering uh, with the characters uh, on adverts is a potential new rev revenue stream for Netflix because we know the show, the, uh, the company rather, is burning through cash as it spends big on content zone. All right. Claire Sebastian, live for us. Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll both be watching later on today. All right. That's it. The first move. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Zane Asher. Up next on CNN, the Global Energy Challenge India. But first, I'll be back with a quick look at your headlines. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.